Welcome back to all of the wonderful listeners of the Global and the Granite State podcast. We love sharing these global discussions with you and hope that you will continue to find good value in our work. For any first-time listeners out there, thank you so much for joining. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director at the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, as well as your host for this podcast. Seeing as how the Council is a nonprofit, I hope you will consider making a donation to help support our efforts to help people better understand the complex global issues we face today. You can make a donation by visiting wacnh.org slash donate or by clicking the donate button in the show's description. You can also support us by subscribing, liking, and sharing our podcast to help spread the good word. These podcasts do not make themselves. Speaking of, we have a great conversation lined up for you today, where we look at the diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Olympic Games in Beijing. There has been a lot of talk about the human rights situation in China, and this is a great way to continue those conversations and bring issues to light. So, without saying too much here, let's hop right in. Last month, we took a deeper look at what many around the world have termed as a genocide that is being perpetrated against the Uyghur Muslims in Western China. If you missed that episode, you may want to start there as it outlines the major reason for why the U.S. and other countries have implemented a diplomatic boycott for the Olympics being held this month in China. In today's episode, we wanted to take a deeper dive into what the Olympics mean, what a diplomatic boycott is, if it is even effective, and what perspective athletes may have on this all. So, to start with a little background, the United States government, objecting to the treatment of the Uyghur population by the Chinese government, has decided to boycott, diplomatically, the 2022 Olympic Games kicking off on February 4th. They've been joined by a number of other countries, all protesting the genocide, but many countries around the world have decided not to join this effort. As the competition between the U.S. and China is playing out across all fields, I am joined by three experts for this conversation. First, Julia Ford, my background is in sports. I competed in the 2014 Olympics in alpine ski racing. From 2008 to 2019, I ski raced professionally, so it's always been a passion, and that's where my expertise really lies. We also have... Richard Sweat. I am a former Olympian aspirant. I did the decathlon in college. I hold the decathlon record at Yale University and aspired to compete in the 80 Olympics, which were canceled by President Carter. After that, I served in Congress and in the State Department as ambassador to Denmark. And during that time, I was on the Olympic Committee representing the state of New Hampshire's Olympians and worked very closely with the National Olympic Committee out of Boulder Springs, Colorado. 
And finally, returning this month, Vikram Manshramani. I am a lecturer at Harvard University, and I've been paying attention to what's been happening in China for almost 30 years now, very closely, specifically relating to human rights and some of the militarization of the Chinese state, if you will. Unfortunately, I've had no aspirations or capability to make it to the Olympics. Despite every intention to be a good athlete, I just don't have the raw talent that either Julia or Dick has. To get the benefit of some perspective here, it is important to note that this is not the first time a boycott, diplomatic or otherwise, has occurred around the Olympics. These occurred in 1956, 64, 76, 80, 84, and 88, meaning that this is the first official boycott in over 34 years. The largest boycott was in 1980, when 66 countries declined to attend the Games in Moscow. This time around, at least 10 countries have confirmed a diplomatic boycott over human rights concerns, while at least another five will not send government delegations, with the stated reason being the ongoing pandemic. This also has a major difference from the 1980 boycott, as athletes are allowed to attend, however government officials will not. It is important to note here that the International Olympic Committee has continually maintained that this is an apolitical event and that geopolitics should not play a role in the selection of host countries, nor at any point during the games themselves. You may be left wondering, then, what does go into the selection process, and how did China end up being this year's host? These days, it goes to the high bidder. And one of the big elements that is very important to the USOC and the uh, International Olympic Committee is the amount of money that people are willing to put into their facilities and uh, all of the uh, things that are going on in the Olympic Games for that two-week period. It is an, an incredibly big money oriented operation. So we are seeing the countries that have that kind of finance available really making the best bids or who are willing to put that kind of money into those operations. In Sochi, it was obviously Russia that was very eager to use that platform to improve its image and stature worldwide. Now we see China with their second Olympic bid. They did the Summer Games a few years ago, and here they are again with the uh, Winter Games this year. They are clearly not only able to put the kind of money into these programs that uh, make for a very expansive and, and impressive presentation, but they are doing it for political reasons. They are really trying to improve their stature. And they get the opportunity to do that because the IOC is more interested in how much money they're going to put into the program as opposed to what they're doing with their people at home. In addition, the International Olympic Committee is a multilateral institution run by appointed officials from around the world. With the focus being on funding coming from countries, I can't help but think about the idea that we explored in our last podcast about China's and the United States' ability to control multilateral institutions for their own gain. I think the reality is the appeal of multilateral institutions that represent numerous countries has been de facto hijacked by a Chinese economic might. It's really hard to imagine, for instance, the UN Human Rights Council calling out China for human rights violations when China's a member and you got a whole bunch of Chinese allies as members. And it's just very difficult. Likewise, multilateral rules-based institutions that cross country borders are sort of 
a new ground of competition, if you will, in this U.S.-China rivalry, because they they come with it, the sort of imprint of legitimacy. It was multilateral. Look, all these countries did this, et cetera. And I worry about that. So I think this is a challenge. You're, you're right to highlight it. One hopes that the ideal of competition on the field or on the, the side of a ski mountain or, or what have you can be protected from those types of dynamics. But sadly, I think at that institutional level, it's really hard to imagine a world, at least in the near term, where those rivalries sort of undermine the legitimacy of multilateral decision making. The next question really has to be, despite the IOC's claim, is it fair to say that the Olympics only serve a role in the sports world? Or, as is the case in so many arenas, does this event transcend sport and give a country the opportunity to shape the narrative around the reality of life. What I would say is, look, there's a long history here of the debate between should sports be politicized or not. But the reality is the Olympics is such a large global spotlight that gets shined on a particular country, and it is an opportunity for them to present their image to the world, that it's de facto got a political element to it. We can debate that whether it should or shouldn't, but the reality is it does. And given it has this political element on it, we should try to be cognizant of that and, you know, represent what we want the world to see. And if that means shining a spotlight on human rights violations or other issues, then I think that's an appropriate thing to do during these types of events, these globally uh, significant events that shine a spotlight. If we can agree, whether we like it or not, that these large sporting events do give power to the host country to control the narrative, and that it does make sense that they would want to present themselves in the best light, what do athletes who are trying to qualify for the Olympics think? Does the location and the geopolitical significance of the moment matter when you are trying to compete at this elite level? Where the Olympics is as an Olympian didn't matter to me as much as trying to qualify for the Olympics just to be perfectly honest at that time. When we were qualifying for the 2014 Olympics, I knew about some of the propaganda or what was going on in Russia at that time. How to qualify for the Olympics is really political all across the board. Ski racing is super quantifiable, which makes it a little easier. But I would say as an athlete, you're so fixated on that, where after I qualified, that's where I started considering more about where I was going and the effects that that had on the world, but also my own safety and what was happening in that country at that time. We certainly cannot blame the athletes for the ongoing issues around the world, nor for the decisions made by the IOC and the implications that come from that. Many of these athletes have dreamed of competing from a very young age, and there are dozens of people who have helped them to achieve this goal. So, is it fair to take away someone's shot at this lifelong goal? when this may be their only chance. I saw people lose their dreams in 1980, when the 80 Olympics were shut off from the uh, the Olympians. And that didn't affect me because I was more realistic and I was already putting my sights on my profession of architecture. But I had friends who ended up as bag boys in the local grocery store because they had nothing else to do. And I was training in Santa Barbara with many people who were very likely going to be one of the top three contenders and just it didn't happen. And as I think about this, you know, my sense is no need to punish the athletes. You are trying your best to do your best at a sport that is important to you. 
But I think that the political boycotting and maybe even athletes wearing armbands protest, that keeps the whole discussion about the problems of the host country in the limelight. And I think that might be one way that we sort of keep the opportunity for the athletes still very much open, but also make the political statement that this country, the host country, is not a good country in many respects, and that that needs to be made public. It would seem only fair that if the host country can work to control the narrative around how the world views it, that those who disagree with that portrayal should be able to use the tools they have at their disposal to shine the light where the host country does not want it. You can quickly see how, despite any efforts to the contrary, this quickly becomes a part of any geopolitical competition. However, it seems the world is trying to balance a number of things here with this diplomatic boycott. We want to try to keep athletics and politics separate. I mean, that's the joy of sports, right? It sort of doesn't matter your political affiliation. This is pure competition. And that's really what we want to preserve, which is why I think, you know, the work that Senator Mitt Romney and, and others did to come up with a diplomatic boycott was an interesting way to thread the needle, which was to make the statement, but not penalize the athletes. Athletes have worked really hard, dedicated lives towards these ambitions with lifelong dreams. And to have a political disruption for that, I'm not sure that's that's fair. But we can still make a statement without politicizing the athletics. It is also not just about the athlete themselves, but rather the many, many people who sacrificed to help get them there. When I went to the Olympics, it wasn't necessarily about me at all. It was about the people that had gotten me there, about my family, about my country, about all these things that I represented and wanted to show what had made me accomplish this, this great feat, right? And so to take that away would be a crime. Therefore, if we don't want to punish the athletes by taking away their opportunity to compete, we are left with the idea of a diplomatic boycott. This is where nations around the world decide that they will not send any government officials to the games, which has the effect of raising awareness around the issue. It also prevents the host country from taking photos with and of world leaders glad-handing and enjoying themselves. While not particularly harmful to the host nation, it does have the intended effect of starting a conversation. However, the athletes themselves also have opinions and voices of their own. As has been suggested, perhaps athletes who attend the games could show signs of solidarity or support for the Uyghurs through protests. I also don't necessarily think that you can take an athlete's platform away from them. So right now in the Olympics, there's this Rule 50 that is banning political protests on podiums. And to me, like you've experienced this whole life, right? And so you overcome all this stuff, whether you're coming from poverty, whether you're coming from some sort of inequity, whatever it is, you've overcome to then stand on top of this podium against the entire world. And you should be able to express some of that adversity that those human rights issues or whatever it is that you had to overcome to get there. You look at the 1936 Olympics, right? When Jesse Owens stands up top during Hitler's racial supremacy, that push, and he stands up there and it's, he's, he's representing everything that he has overcome. And I think the IOC needs to understand that idea of the Olympics is that, that development of humankind with the values that we're trying to instill in the world, peace, right? And so when you were not, when the world is not actually having peace, 
then it is political because that's that, that's what the Olympics is supposed to be about. And so we can't ignore that side of what we're representing at that moment. Last year, the IOC weakened Rule 50 to allow for more freedom for athletes to make statements in press conferences or on the field of play. But it still forbids any protest or statement during medal ceremonies. However, the Chinese government has made statements saying that any comments that violate Chinese law will be punished. It will be interesting to see how this is handled, as the IOC did not punish American shot putter Raven Saunders, who protested on the medal podium in 2021, and the Chinese government usually does not prosecute foreigners for things they say in the country. So I don't necessarily know what the IOC can do when it's already done, right? Like they can say, you can't do this, but you get up there and do it and you've already made your point. So, okay, fine them, ban them, whatever it is, like you've already competed. So it, it is a little bit tricky um, in that situation. I'm pretty sure in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics that Tommy Smith and Juan Carlos, they were sent home, but like they'd already won their medals. They'd already done what they were there to do and mm-hmm. made like had has one of the most famous Olympic pictures of all time, right? So I don't really, I don't really necessarily think that IOC can do that much after an athlete has already made their point. One of the interesting backstories on the raised black glove fists of Tommy Smith and Juan Carlos was that they only had one pair of gloves. So one guy rose his right hand and the other guy rose his left hand. Practical solution yeah. to a, a problem that they hadn't really thought about. So I don't know if the right hand or left hand was more significant, but that, that was the reason. I'm sure that most people will remember those iconic protests that have been mentioned already. But beyond medal ceremonies, are there examples of athletes really using their voice to make change? And how does this happen? That's something that looking in the ski racing world, like Bodie Miller was amazing at. They'd say, hey, Bodie, like, how was your race today? And he'd be like, good. But do you know this? And so he would be able to sway that conversation to make the point. And a lot of times that point is greater than just a ski race or just a hockey mm-hmm. game or whatever it is. Sometimes a performance at those competitions can be a bigger statement, right? Look at the U.S. winning in hockey coming up over the, the Soviet Union. Like that was a huge statement in itself. Other times that has to happen in an interview, uh, in a podcast, something like that, where you're just making more people aware of what's going on. Because right now, not everyone is aware of what's happening outside of just the Olympics are being hosted invasion. You see LeBron James stepping up and using, he has something like 190 million followers, right? Like you can't stifle that voice. He makes one statement on his Instagram and social media ties us all together right now. And that, that's going viral. Like that's, that's out there. As mentioned at the outset, there have been many attempts at full or partial boycotts of the Olympics throughout the 20th century. The United States and its allies did not boycott the Olympics being held in Nazi Germany in 1936. And there have been a list of other countries who have had problems that were not boycotted. Also, as we've talked about the 1980 and 84 boycotts, those did not bring about an end to the Cold War or usher in better relations between the U.S. and Soviet Union. So, how effective have these efforts really been, and can they be effective in creating change in the future? I would say, look, these boycotts are ultimately targeting the court of public opinion and sort of the the global perception. And that's really what we're getting at here. And that is, in many ways, 
the tip of the spear of what has been called soft power, right? We're dealing with values. We're dealing with perception. We're dealing with perspective. And so by highlighting particular concern or topic, you know, it's very hard to, to draw the line directly to impact, but the indirect line and the sort of court of public opinion is real. Now, I would ask you, in the particular situation of the Beijing games here, with the genocide that's taking place in Chinese-occupied East Turkestan, what I would say is, would athletes want to know that Nike might be getting cotton made with forced labor? Does it bleed into sponsorship conversations? Does it result in corporations, as we've now seen, companies like Intel saying, oh, we've got this Xinjiang dynamic here, we got to pay attention, or Walmart saying we're not going to have products that are made with forced labor that we're able to know, or the U.S. government saying, you know, we don't want to have forced, known forced labor generated goods brought into our country. I think these are important dynamics to highlight. Is there a direct impact that we can trace from boycott to impact? I think that's harder, but there are definitely ripples that occur by shining the spotlight on bad developments in the world. And I think the Vikram makes a very good point. And the word that I would focus on is conversations. The conversations about these issues are becoming greater and greater, louder and louder, more prevalent and more prevalent. I can remember going back to South Africa and apartheid, you know, the, the World Cup not being held there because of the apartheid regime that was in place down there. That made an impact. But the boycotts that we're talking about at the Olympics, I think they are gaining momentum. I think you know that this is a conversation that that has been going on for a long time. Spotty maybe going back to the Germany games in '36, but maybe even more so with Mexico and then Munich, the uh, Moscow uh, boycott. I mean, these are all things that are gaining momentum, gaining volume, and therefore gaining impact. In addition, these efforts force countries all over the world to make a statement on what is important to them. One concern that is a very valid concern to have when starting a diplomatic protest is countries that choose not to diplomatically protest may be implicitly endorsing the regime. And so, you know, I think as of fairly recently, I think the number of countries that were joining the U.S. in the diplomatic protest of the Beijing games were Lithuania, New Zealand, Australia, the U.K., Canada, Kosovo, and Japan said they weren't going to send their prime minister, but they weren't diplomatically officially boycotting. Now, those are very loyal U.S. allies, you know, but there are a lot of countries that have chosen not to. In fact, some very publicly. South Korea said, hey, you know what? We're not going to do that. There's this economic realism of countries saying, hey, we don't want to offend the big market and the big economic force in our neighborhood. And by the way, they're gaining military might. And so then you have to raise the question is, is the lack of others joining a diplomatic protest giving that regime an endorsement? And it gets really complicated really quickly. To be clear, the United States does not have a perfect record when it comes to human rights and still grapples with these issues. From the history of slavery to Japanese internment camps, the treatment of native populations, and the racial justice movement today, many people will say, who is the U.S. to judge? In fact, the Chinese government has already threatened to boycott the U.S. games being held in Los Angeles in 2028. There are no angels in this crowd, so you're absolutely right. But the bottom line is we are 
one of the countries that is most openly trying to address these problems. We are addressing everything from racial and ethnicity and religiosity and, and gender issues all the way to economic issues. And, you know, what, what is the level of the minimum wage? That, that's part of this discussion. So, you know, my feeling is that we're going to have imperfect alternatives, imperfect choices, but they will be less imperfect than others. And I think there's going to have to be a sliding scale. One area left to explore is the idea that not only should governments boycott an athlete's protest, but corporations should take a stand here too. As Vikram pointed out earlier, companies, similar to governments, have seemed to come down on one side or the other of this issue. What does this mean for the athletes and the local Olympic committees who rely on sponsorships to enable their ability to compete? Just a little background, when you make the Olympic team, you can only wear and represent certain sponsors that have bought into that Olympic pool. So in Sochi, it was Nike, Ralph Lauren, there's a number of other ones. Everything else you wear, like I skied for Leaky, Vocal, we ski for Spider on the US ski team. And so those logos were only allowed to be a certain size on everything. And and they're giving you stickers because most of the time it's like really large and they're giving you stickers to make everything the appropriate size. You could be fined. Like there's all this stuff that goes into it. And that all goes into who's buying into the rights to endorse those athletes and the Olympic Games. So when we start talking about what sponsors we can have, those type of things, they're, they're dishing out a, a lot of money to do that. And so what I think about is like, there's not that many companies, I wouldn't think that could support such a large amount of athletes to, to buy that sort of publicity. That's tough because it's, I don't want to hurt the athletes when the athletes are the ones that are wearing that they're trying to make a living doing this. And they also are trying to represent their countries at the Olympics. And so when we start saying like, we can't wear Nike because they're buying cotton from here, whatever it is, I want to support that. Uh, And this is kind of that, that human tear, right? Like I want to support that, but I also want to be able to go perform my best. So if my ski company was making skis, you know, abusing human rights, do I support that ski company? I would probably try to look for other skis that I could get more on board with. However, if I find out about that the week before the Olympics, that's a tough one. That's tough, right? And so when we start getting into that in- endorsement, like in and, and a normal year, you can choose your endorsers. Like you can, I can choose who my head sponsor is going to be and how I represent them. I, I, that's, that's my choice. When we get to the Olympics, we're not choosing necessarily what the companies are that are endorsing us. The, our Olympic committee is, right? Like sometimes Spider's our sponsor, but we have to wear Nike at the Olympics because that's who's paying the big bucks. So Nike's a really interesting company to raise, right? Because Nike has come out recently and said they are for China and they are heavily involved in athletic equipment and athletic gear and athletic attire. And I think, you know, there are some real questions that are going to be raised of some of these major U.S. companies and sort of their supply chain, the transparency of their supply chain, the concerns, et cetera. I asked our three speakers for any final thoughts that they had to share. These all centered around the idea that the boycott is a good start to the conversation, but of course, more needs to be done to address the human rights situation in China. In addition, while this is a highly important issue, we should not forget the challenges, hurdles, and impediments that these athletes have overcome to reach the pinnacle of their sport. 
It is through these athletes and their stories that we can learn more about the world and see a path forward to a brighter future. Every time an Olympics is held, we see wonderful stories of camaraderie between athletes, even from countries who have geopolitical issues between them. They are shining examples of how countries can come together to make the world a better place for everyone. I will leave you with this final thought from Julia. The Olympic motto, their mission is outside of winning and losing is to bring countries together to compete and have human equality, all of those things, those values that we try to teach our children, that character we try to instill. And so even outside of that winning and losing, that is what we should really take away from from the Olympics. I want to thank Julia Ford, Vikram Mancharamani, and Dick Sweat for joining me for this important conversation. We hope you have found good insights and value to this discussion and that you feel a little more prepared to continue conversations with your friends and family. Thank you all for listening here today. We really appreciate your interest and hope that you will check out other World Affairs Council of New Hampshire's programs. We have a wonderful library of recorded events, previous podcast episodes, and opportunities for you to engage in global discussions. It is through your support that our programs are made possible. As always, Tim Horgan is the host, producer, audio engineer, editor, and whatever else you can think of for this program. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto. And our interlude music is Sport Rock by Scott Holmes Music. This has been a presentation of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Mm-hmm.